0: The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Good morning. Good afternoon. Welcome to another edition of the American Health Law Association for Abuse podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel. Today, we're talking with Charles Oppenheim at the law firm of Hooper Lundy based in Los Angeles. Mr. Oppenheim recently co-authored and released the seventh edition of his American Health Law Association treatise, The Stark Law, A Comprehensive Analysis and Practical Guide which has been updated, revised, and expanded to account for the array of recent changes to the Physician Self-Referral, or Stark Law. This includes the 2020 Value-Based and Care Coordination Rules. We're going to spend a little time today talking with Charles about the updated book and the latest Stark Law developments. Charles is co-chair of Hooper Lundy's Business Department. His practice includes all aspects of transactional, operational, and regulatory health law, including mergers and acquisitions, affiliations, joint ventures, and the formation of integrated delivery systems. Among Charles's clients are many of the largest healthcare companies and hospital systems in the U.S. And he's a nationally recognized expert on anti-kickback statute and Stark law issues. He's got recognized expertise in healthcare gain sharing, pay for performance, clinical co-management agreements, and he also creates and implements compliance programs and investigates compliance issues. Charles, welcome. You know, Charles, you just released the seventh edition. Of the HLA Stark Law Comprehensive Analysis and Practice Guide, you know I think one of the things that um, you know folks would want to hear about a little bit is what's new to the seventh edition of the book, and uh, what can what can readers expect when they when they get their copy.
1: Um, well, the the short answer is there is a whole lot that's new. I mean the the new regulations that came out and became effective on January 19th of 2021. Are probably the most sweeping uh, changes to the Stark regulations. Um, you know, kind of almost from the inception, I would say. Um, in in many different ways, uh, one one of the way one of the ways in which they've really gotten a lot of the most attention, and I think of great interest to a lot of a lot of clients, are the new value-based arrangement exceptions. Um, and so those are those are designed to allow people to Put together, sort of innovative financial relationships with physicians that are designed to increase quality and control costs and improve patient access in a new value-based world. And they are designed to sort of bring down some of the barriers that the traditional Stark exceptions represented to um, folks who are trying to do those types of arrangements. And that's that's gotten a lot of attention and a lot of um, uh, it's a It's a focus for a lot of clients that I interact with when they're um, looking at ways to take advantage of the of the new possibilities presented by these regulations.
0: Absolutely. no, the change is pretty um, pretty dramatic. Um, are there any sort of you know highlights that you'd want to call out for folks?
1: Well, I think what distinguishes this uh, well, not just this edition, but this book and the series you know all, all together from a lot of other stuff is that it really, it goes kind of beyond the basic, the basics of just sort of explaining, you know, the law says this, the law says that, the law says the other thing. And we really try to analyze how, how the law applies in real life situations that we see all the time that we advise clients about and point out some of the trickier parts uh, of, of, of the law when you're applying it to real life situations, and we try to offer an abundance of practical tips um, and advice to clients on, on how to steer clear of the, of the landmines that, that are out there. Um, so, so I think that's, that's one of the things that really has always distinguished um, this, this book from a lot of other materials that are out
0: there sort of more the practical, uh, you know, downstream consequences of behavior and actions and thinking through things in a realistic way. Um, you know, just as a, as a health lawyer that works with, uh, you know, all, all manner of, of healthcare clients, I know that's so important and, and practical, especially, you know, when you're dealing with something like the Stark Law, which can be quite uh, complicated. Um, Charles, what what drove you to launch this book so many years ago? I've been enjoying reading about uh, about this book. And tell, tell me what uh, got this started so long ago.
1: Well, you know, I I started dealing with the Stark law kind of almost from the beginning when the law was first uh, enacted. And, and um, you know, I was an associate at the time. So I was kind of just at that at right stage of my career for kind of the senior partners in my firm to say, well, this looks like an important new area. Let's stick some eager young lawyer into this and, and make sure that that, that that associate learns it. And, you know, then we have somebody to go to when we have these issues. And so I've been, I've been doing this stuff since, since the early 90s. And um, the first edition of this book came out in 1998. And it was to some degree it was a byproduct of an, of, an ex, of an extensive comment letter that I submitted on behalf of a client. CMS commenting on the first set of proposed regulations, identifying a lot of issues in those proposed regulations, identifying things that the uh, regulations didn't address that were problem areas in the statute itself. And I basically sort of took that long comment letter and then just built it out with real life examples of things that I had analyzed for clients where the law was really tricky and complicated and non-intuitive. And I just sort of built that out. Together with you know um, additional materials and sort of and I, I saw I saw a need for it you know I, the, the other materials that I saw were out there sure. on Stark were just you know just introductory stuff that just said you know hey the law says A B and C and I wanted to, to take it further than that and really help people um, who are struggling with applying the law on a day to day matters.
0: Well, certainly, um, that's a, it's a great background for how this uh, originated, and, and I can certainly see how the practical element came into play as well, given the comment letter uh, that you'd originally written. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned unaddressed issues, problem areas. Certainly, they're different now than they were uh, in 98. Certainly, they're different now than they were when Pete Stark first authored the law in the 80s. Um, what would you say are some of the unaddressed issues that are still being faced um, or that are new uh, to the healthcare delivery system uh, that are unaddressed under the current Stark uh, regs or even the revised regs from earlier this year?
1: You know, some of, some of, and I, you know, it's strong to say that they're unaddressed because they're, some of the, them are addressed and sometimes even addressed repeatedly, but they continue um, to be very challenging when you actually start trying to apply them in real life situations. And And it's interesting, I'm working through right now some issues, we, and these come up a lot. A lot of hospitals, for example, have hired um, mid-level practitioners, you know, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and they have hired them to help with inpatient care and and patient throughput. And an issue that keeps coming up again and again is when that happens, are should, does that somehow then create a Stark issue? Because you have community physicians, who you know are otherwise just medical medical staff members on the hospital's medical staff, don't have a financial relationship with the hospital, um, per se. But if these if these community physicians are seeing inpatients in the hospital, are the hospital-employed mid-levels effectively? free services to those physicians because they're helping to do stuff the physicians would otherwise have to have done themselves on their patients who are admitted to the hospital? Or, you know, or can you say, no, those, uh, those mid-levels hired by the hospital are really just helping to deliver a higher quality of care. They're benefiting the hospital, they're benefiting the patient, but they don't constitute a financial benefit to the physicians. And those arrangements can be pretty tricky and fact-intensive to analyze. And I don't think it's uh, um, necessarily like the fault of the Stark regulations that they don't kind of get into that because that's, that can sometimes be some of the hardest places where, you know, you're trying to analyze an arrangement and there's not always a clear answer. At what point does an arrangement like this cross the line and have to be considered a financial relationship with the physician as opposed to not crossing the line and just being viewed as something that create a higher level of care in the hospital.
0: Well, I, I think that's an interesting area, and um, it really demonstrates the complexity, not only of you know, the relationships at issue, but also uh, the complexity of the Stark Law and Regulations themselves and how they're applied. Um, you mentioned this particular issue, but another question that I have, you know, given your expertise in Stark and, and healthcare fraud and abuse What's top of mind for your clients right now? We're at a pivotal moment. We're, uh, you know, some would say still, you know, in the height of the pandemic. Some see us, uh, you know, coming out the end, uh, the, some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but uh, the healthcare delivery system, of course, has taken the brunt of uh, the impact uh, on co- uh, uh, from COVID. Um, you know, maybe besides that or because of that, what's going on with your clients right now? What are they thinking about and what are they focused on?
1: I'm going to answer that question and keep it kind of in Starkland. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of other um, is- legal issues that are raised, you know, by responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but you know, in Starkland, one of the things that we had was um, we got the benefit of COVID-19 waivers that were issued by CMS in recognition that people needed to do all kinds of things and they needed to do them very quickly. And um, Sometimes the old Stark exceptions and rules were a little bit of a hindrance to people reacting quickly to what they had to do to take care of patients in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so they, they allow people to respond with financial relationships um, that might not otherwise comply with the Stark law, um, but they got a waiver um, as long as the national health emergency caused by the pandemic is present. And so a lot of, I, I work with a lot of hospitals and continue to do so. On arrangements that are intended to um, allow sort of services to continue in place and allow physicians to treat COVID patients, um, but also to care for other patients, given all that's going on now with COVID, um, in ways that may be um, that may be outside of what would have fit into a traditional Stark exception, but are um, but are taking advantage of the waivers. Uh, in order to do that and to facilitate those arrangements. So that's something I've spent a fair bit of time with clients on. And one thing that people are thinking about now, as we hope and think that at some point, this thing is going to end is, you know, then of course, the waivers will expire at the end of the pandemic. And then um, people will have to be mindful of that. And if they've put an arrangement into place uh, under the waiver, you know, then of course, they're going to have to figure out how to, bring that to a graceful end um, before before the uh, waiver ends, so they don't end up with a situation on the other side of the expiration of that waiver that creates a stark issue.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Just the, the ability to pull back from established relationships that might be working really well, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, need to comply with uh, the stark regs you mentioned uh, at the at the top of this uh, discussion Charles the um, the value-based uh, and care coordination regulations that came out where would you say have been sort of the top you know areas um, that your clients are interested in or the top areas that have caused either the most questions or the most concern for your clients and um, you know any thoughts on how to address those
1: well um, what I've done probably most often for clients vis-a-vis the Stark Law is uh, in in the value-based arrangement exception arena is put together new arrangements that are intended to fit within the value-based arrangement exception and provide um, items uh, or services to physicians and their patients that may constitute remuneration but are intended to be in furtherance of a value-based purpose and are for, you know, the benefit of a particular target um, patient population. And, and so people have been putting together these sort of innovative arrangements and taking advantage of the new leeway provided by these ex- new exceptions. And that's, that's very useful. And if you can, const- and, and it turns out that it, it can be easier to create a value-based arrangement and a value-based um, enterprise, then people realize it doesn't have to be any fancier than just a hospital um, stru- structuring a contract with uh, a medical group or, or a, a number of different independent physicians. And that can itself be a value-based enterprise. You know, if, it's, if the arrangement they're constructing is to further value-based purposes, you know, to improve quality or access or coordinate care for a, a particular target patient population, and so it doesn't have. You don't have to form a new organization and draft bylaws and all that stuff. You can do it just with a simple contractual arrangement. And one of the benefits of the value-based arrangement, when you strike one with physicians, is that it also um, unleashes a new uh, a new safe harbor on on kickback and civil money penalty statute that allows you to provide patients with. Um, with items or services valued up to $500 a year that benefit them in achieving some of the goals of the value-based arrangement. So that's that's an ancillary benefit that's not directly stark, uh, but it's, you know, kind of uh, stark adjacent as it were.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about the future. What would you say, Charles, are your top three predictions for uh, huh. health law, for fraud abuse, for enforcement—that uh, uh, we might uh, be uh, be privy to over the next uh, twelve months.
1: Oh my gosh! You, uh, you yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, in, in terms of uh, in terms of all of healthcare, I, I don't know. That's a, that, uh, but uh, but in focusing on the narrow the more of a narrow subject, I guess, at the Stark law. I think, you know, continued enforcement of the Stark Law, primarily through whistleblower False Claims Act cases, you know, is, is a trend that's just continuing to increase. And I believe that there will be more of those. I think um, a, a lot of those are just based on sort of conventional arrangements that the whistleblower feels are not um, are not compliant with Stark. Often, the, you know, the heart of the allegation is that the physician's are, are um, do not have a fair market value arrangement, for example, they're either overpaid for what they do or undercharged for what they're getting. Um, those, those continue to get traction. And I, I would expect to see, you know, in, in that vein, some similar lawsuits that start to have more of a COVID flavor. You know, you might see people challenging arrangements that were done under the auspices of the COVID waivers that I mentioned a few minutes ago, and you could see whistleblowers challenging that and saying, no, you didn't really meet the waiver, or no, you didn't need the waiver, and so therefore you shouldn't have tried to use it, or, you know, um, other kinds of arguments that whistleblowers would make. Um, The other area, I guess, COVID-related is um, just COVID enforcement in general, I think, has started to Predictably, you know, it's starting to, to take shape out there and the government is cracking down on arrangements that they think uh, represent providers exploiting the COVID pandemic um, for wrongful ends.
0: Charles Oppenheim, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been so terrific. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing your insight with uh, the HLA members.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure.
0: This has been another edition of the American Health Law Association's Fraud and Abuse podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel, and we'll return next month with another episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.